happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America, through Central America, and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for November the 21st, 2018, episode 115. I am Wes Fryer, coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I am the Director of Technology at the Cassie School, and certainly attired for a vacation day. So, uh, full disclosure, uh, Time got away from us a little bit with the uh, pre-holiday festivities, and I was was not here at the top of the hour to be with Jason. But Jason, you are coming from interesting parts far afield. So where are you joining us from tonight? Yes, good evening. I am on the uh, west coast of Costa Rica, where my wife and I will be spending the next week um, in a, a small bed and breakfast just off of the ocean. And we spent uh, Monday and Tuesday traveling here, got here Late yesterday afternoon, have already um, experienced wonderful local seafood, and I actually worked today out of the bed and breakfast here, and so had decent enough internet to be able to do my job, where I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana, and uh, tonight coming from parts unknown. And I have to apologize, my lighting's a little rough because I'm... Um, it's actually, uh, well, I'm, I'm in your time zone tonight, Wes, and in this particular case, the B&B is such that I can't use my regular long broadcasting voice, so the lights are dim. I have a temporary flashlight if I need it. I suppose I could do the, the park is closed sort of thing. So um, if you want to go for a Blair Witch Project feel, we'll, we'll go for the flashlight. <laughs> I'm glad you, I've almost made the reference, and I'm glad you did. So um, so for those of you new to the EdTech Situation Room, first, uh, happy holidays to those in the United States where it is Thanksgiving week and Thanksgiving Day tomorrow. For those of you joining us for the first time at the EdTech Situation Room, we are a podcast that looks at tech news through an educational lens. And so we kind of comb through the headlines each week looking for interesting bits of information we can share with you, the listener, and talk a little bit about how it might uh, impact education. And as it turns out, um, it was a, it's usually a slow news week during Thanksgiving week, but there's still some wonderful headlines that we'll talk through um, during the podcast tonight. And for those of you interested, we always post our show notes and links to every article we refer to at our website, edtechsr.com. And so, Wes, where would you like us to start tonight? All right. Well, thank you so much for picking up the slack on the on the article links. I will drop in and probably move a couple from last week. But I guess I'll uh, I'll start with an outage link. Um, we do not use Active Directory for all of our users at school. And as many listeners probably know, Active Directory is Microsoft's directory that helps you keep track of users and devices and assign rights to be able to get to shared folders and things like that. And Microsoft, like many companies, probably all companies, maybe you could say, is on this path of migrating to the cloud. And so the uh, article that I uh, dropped in in our Microsoft category was from TechCrunch on November 19th, Office 365 Azure users are locked out after a global multi-factor authentication outage. And the other thing that I didn't actually, I don't, know, I don't know if I've seen an article for this, but on Friday, LastPass actually had an outage. And we have recommended uh, the use of LastPass as a password manager to all of our faculty staff. We don't manage it. We're not you know, taking liability responsibility for that. We recommend people use some kind of a password manager and that's 
you know, the primary ones that's free that we've recommended. But anyway, uh, they had said your offline mode is working, but anyway, some uh, fairly significant administrators in our uh, organization were unable to, you know, get into their, their last pass and uh, that, that presented some problems. So I, I looked at their Twitter and they've got a Twitter update handle and things were, were back online. But uh, both of those are certainly some pretty substantial problems if you are relying upon the cloud to authenticate via Azure and uh, Microsoft's world, and then also in the world of LastPass. So uh, any thoughts about this, Jason? And uh, were you affected at all? You, you were traveling en route, so I'm going to guess you were probably in the clear, not, not uh, relying on either of those platforms. So it's funny you should mention that because I one of the things I did do is I moved to an older phone for this uh, this trip, and I had read some information to suggest that uh, electronic devices were of particular uh, interest of pickpockets in this general region. I'm usually pretty good about that. I've never had a, a real issue with that. Um, but being trying to be you know a safety minded individual, I'm carrying around an old Chromebook with me this week and an old phone with a broken screen on it. Um, uh, as my main drivers, and so I had to restore my uh, uh, Android instance to this phone and have everything down on there, and I couldn't get Microsoft Authenticator to work when I was doing so, setting that up, um, and as it turns out, I think that was the reason why, because I was able to do so uh, yesterday waiting in an airport in Miami, but uh, was not able to do that before. So, um, you know, I it, this is an interesting discussion because I, I, I've never been directly a part of, of the cloud versus non-cloud discussion, but the thing you always hear about is, you know, what if the cloud goes down? I can tell you my general experience has been working in school, two school districts as a teacher that the cloud's never cloud-based services have never gone out as much as file and print services have in districts that have, you know, localized servers uh, structures. But yeah, it's a real risk of putting things up on the cloud. I still think that I would trust an enterprise-level service like Microsoft or Google or LastPass, for that matter, to for user services over something that happened more locally. Um, because it's hard to maintain hardware, and almost every school is vastly understaffed in, from an IT standpoint. But, you know, I, the, the saddest part about that to me is that it adds fuel to the argument that the cloud is inferior to local hosting of services. So I think that article is interesting and certainly explains some, some minor outages that I experienced earlier as well. I know you put another uh, article in there talking about... Uh... Microsoft and Google's development of uh, Chrome for Windows on ARM. You want to pick up that one? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, as reported previously on this podcast, uh, Microsoft has been experiencing with Windows for ARM, and ARM is the chip that's sitting in uh, your mobile phone. It's a, a highly um, battery-sipping uh, uh, chip. It, it uses very little battery in comparison to the output it puts out and compared to Intel or, or um, x86 chips, as they're sometimes called. They have a lot of advantages to them. And right now, Windows has a couple of laptops and kind of convertible tablets available that run Windows for ARM on it. But the biggest problem has been software compatibility. The actual hardware and the operating system are wonderful in that they oftentimes provide a uh, insane battery life. I've seen estimates saying that laptops are getting 20, 22 hours of battery life um, while maintaining 
a relatively low temperature, which is not unlike some of the outputs that the higher end phones get uh, that, that are, are sitting in your pocket. And if Microsoft can figure this out, uh, not unlike what Apple has done with the iPad, it could really create some really wonderful long long battery life devices. However, the biggest problem has been that that on the Microsoft side, that they, there just isn't compatibility with their existing program architecture, which means that a very limited set of programs runs on Windows for ARM. However, as uh, the, the article I'm citing tonight, which is from The Verge from today, I believe, um, the Google is now working actively with Microsoft uh, to come up with Chrome for ARM, which will be a massive step forward for Microsoft. Uh, one of the, in my mind, the biggest disadvantages of Windows ARM devices, it's not that it can't run all programs, it's that it can't run a handful, one or two programs, I think are critical for power users. And in my mind, Chrome is one of those, uh, that if you're stuck in the Edge browser, and I will admit the Edge browser is infinitely better than Internet Explorer, but it's still, in my mind, pretty uh, deficient to where Chrome is in 2018. And so good on Microsoft um, and Google for working towards a solution to this, and I think it's going to make Windows laptops, especially if they end up moving towards the ARM architecture, you know, that much better of a platform. Shout out to Peggy George, who's joining us in our chat room, and uh, she's asking why you are in the nor in the dark. Uh, Peggy Jason is actually joining us uh, from a remote Central American location where he is undercover for the EdTech community, attempting to infiltrate <laughs> the Microsoft uh, bastion of gorillas that are there uh, you know, hiding in mountains. And so he's actually smuggled a number of Chrome devices, but he's having to be, be camouflaged. Actually, some of that is true. He is in Central America, but it has to do with his, his bed and breakfast context there. So, Yep. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> where to next? Uh, I, I would love to go to the tech correction uh, section. So as, as some of you may know, Jason has coined this phrase, the, the technology correction or the tech correction, as we see well, hearings in Congress and lots of uh, very justified angst and anger, even on the part of folks in terms of the ways in which information is, is being weaponized and, uh, you know, used uh, to to do things that we probably did not realize. And uh, I, I tweeted this article um, between our last show and this, but this was a, an op-ed by Nina Jenkowitz in the Washington Post, and it made, immediately made me think of Jason and the tech correction, and this is from November 15th, and it's called It's Time to Start Regulating Facebook. And I, I've i seen a number of articles like this in, in, you know, not just the past week, but, you know, it's this is the tech correction, is, is the, the pendulum swinging. And I got to say, I think I think I totally agree. Uh, I have watched most of the um, PBS Frontline special called The Facebook Dilemma, which I mentioned on the show last week. And it just really, it really portrays Facebook as recklessly irresponsible, uh, particularly in parts of the developing world where Facebook has become, I think, as we talked about last week, synonymous with the Internet, much in the way of, you know, picking up a tissue. Some of us might say Kleenex, you know, because that's just that you know, or, or Coke, you know, in some parts of the of the country, a soft drink is it's a Coke. Um, so Facebook has become synonymous in, in countries like like the Philippines, like Myanmar, I think in Indonesia as well. And, uh, you know, in those places, 
uh, it's just so irresponsible, the, the lack of native language speakers that Facebook had on staff and the ways in which they, you know, just did not, um, I guess, if, you know, maybe you can't hold them responsible for not being able to anticipate everything. But once you see what's happening, not responding, it just really um, is problematic. So I think today in this this article about regulating Facebook really raises the issue. It's we've just heard so many apologies. We've heard so many. Yeah, we're, we're trying. It's hard. Uh, I just don't think it's good enough. And so I, I'm ready to see Congress, uh, step in and regulate. And I know that's, that's kind of a different, a different, uh, tone than I've taken before. So, uh, your thoughts on this, Jason? Are you, are you ready to light the torches and, and grab the pitchforks, uh, and, and give Congress the, the thumbs up from, from Montana, at least from, from where you sit on the regulation of, of perhaps more than just Facebook, but specifically Facebook and, and the ways in which they've, Falling, falling down on the job? Sure, especially as an analog of social media. I think you're very correct, Wes, that, that uh, people, in the same way, remember when uh, uh, the word Google was synonymous with the Internet um, a long time ago, um, that you know, people were Googling things like that was the entirety of the Internet. And I think Facebook has become that in, in, in no, um, no small way. Um, the other articles that I think go, and, and by the way, um, uh, Wes, you, I think you saw that you got a shout-out back from that that. Uh, um, uh, the author of the article from the Washington Post, uh, after you tweeted that, that she, she thanked you for reading. So, um, there's other interesting pieces of support the, from this this week. And the first and foremost is a really great article from The Verge on November 19th. And basically what it does is it goes over, there's been a lot of news in the last, uh, 15 days or so um, on Facebook, including some exposés in the New York Times that talk a little bit about, um, uh, well, essentially Mark Zuckerberg as a hands-off CEO when it comes to a lot of this Russia stuff. Um, it calls to task uh, the, the COO, Sheryl Sandberg, um, who initially pushed back very aggressively against any regulation of perceived Russian influence in the election via Facebook. Um, there's also some suggestions that um, uh, that Facebook, uh, uh, needs to be a little more, uh, I guess, uh, deft in the way it treats George Soros and his crew. And now Sheryl Sandberg and George Soros will be meeting to talk a little bit about, um, uh, his influence, uh, in, in particularly left circles. And he's very concerned that Facebook has helped perpetuating the notion that there is this mass Jewish conspiracy around the world led by billionaires like George Soros. Um, I put that article there because it does a great job of explaining some of the broader claims in the last couple of weeks uh, related to Facebook. But I think there are a couple of things here that are, are very much at task. And we'll talk a couple of these individually. First, there's a wonderful article from the New York Times on November 15th that basically uh, talks to CS students um, in college. And many of them specifically called out Facebook as a place where they don't want to work. And the reason why I think that's interesting is because that puts Facebook clearly out of the kind of, uh, you know, new CS uh, graduate kitsch that it's had over the last, you know, 15 years. And I think the same thing is also happening, you know, down the street in Palo Alto at, uh, at, the Google headquarters, right? There's this notion that um, uh, 
um, that uh, graduates don't want to go make, you know, uh, six-figure salaries at these big, massive technology players now because they question whether or not the work they're doing is the good work they claim it is. And more importantly, they don't want to be part of something that's going to eventually be blamed for all sorts of social ills. And I think it's a real sign of a turnaround in in, in social media and maybe more broadly, like, a, you know, using technology correction trademark, um, you know, that that's certainly a part of what this is. But I think that's a real sign, a, a canary in the coal mine, if you will, that, um, you know, the, the times have changed and it isn't necessarily like people aren't necessarily, um, you know, sticking with the technology companies that, that brought us here, that they're looking for new ways to innovate and new ways to engage. Um, uh, when I read this, the computer science article from the New York Times, I was very much reminded that there was a, um, uh, an alternative to Facebook that, um, was created by Dave Morin. He was an early Facebook guy and Dave happens to be a graduate of Capitol High School, the uh, school I taught in, in Helena, Montana. Dave's a great guy, smart guy, very brilliant, um, married to Britt Morin, who runs, uh, a Brit and company, um, a uh, kind of a younger lifestyle brand um, in California, and both do really great work. But he started a, a, a something called Path, and Path was a social media tool that limited the number of connections you could have. And they had a scientifically uh, generated number of 100 and something odd connections saying that you can really only have meaningful interaction with 100 and some odd people. And... Um, that eventually was sold off and that, that was recently closed. I think it was to a Korean company and Path recently closed, but it feels like that was an early indication when an early Facebook person was, you know, noting that there was something maybe inherently inhuman about the way Facebook was going about the, the collection of connections and trying to, to, to you know, push that sharing ethic. And so that, that's the fact that CS majors seem to be going that direction, I think is, is a, a pretty interesting development. And then one other side note, and we'll jump into those other articles that you just, that you threw in Wes. Um, there, there was a, uh, a BBC reported today about a, uh, movement um, that a company that's looking to become a Facebook whistleblower is starting to advertise on Facebook for to Facebook employees to say that they would love to become the uh, object of, of internal whistleblowing at Facebook. And the reason why I mentioned this ad is funny. It's interesting, right? But it also um, it you know and that this was uh, covered in the article. Um, the BBC article talks about that you, you can actually do that, right? Like that's one of the things about Facebook advertising. The reason why it's so effective is that you can micro-target fairly aggressively. And in this case, they're targeting their advertisement just towards people that work at Facebook um, um, at the, the central offices um, in Silicon Valley. And you know, that wouldn't be possible with, first of all, a lot of other tools, right? And then more importantly, it certainly would have been possible pre-Facebook to, to target advertising in that way. You would have had to you create, you know, um, uh, handouts and advertisements um, and leaflets that you would hand directly to people you knew to be Facebook employees. And yet that technology um, it very much exists today because of Facebook. So where are you at with the correction, uh, Wes? Well, you know, one of my thoughts is that we need to be prepared as uh, as technology leaders and educators uh, to have answers for folks that are going to have questions about this. One of the biggest differences between, you know, Google, for instance, and Facebook, especially with regard to schools, 
Uh, number one is that Google is providing us with incredibly powerful productivity and collaboration tools that are of immense value, right? Like I don't have the exact percentage, but I'm pretty sure that well over 50% of our staff, maybe now eight years, nine years or so, I, I guess I could look that up as far as being moved over to Google, you know, from Exchange and, and from really a, a purely Microsoft Office productivity suite standpoint. We still got, you know, versions of Office um, that are being used and, and run. And there's people who are not going to, you know, let, let go of those. Uh, and I'm not saying, by the way, for anyone from our school who's listening, that <laughs> in a way, but, you know, there's a lot of our users, myself included, that just don't use Microsoft Office very much anymore. Um, and I really, really value, and, and, and many of us do, those kinds of tools. Um, it's really important to understand how, you know, Google is not gathering data on students that are part of the G Suite for Education, um, you know, uh, service. And, and so, you know, obviously part of Google's game is to get students to love their products and to be able to utilize them and to use Gmail and, you know, to have, have a lifetime of, of utilizing Google, which, and Google utilizes, you know, information that they glean from users and from behavior in order to sell ads to, to, uh, you know, advertisers and, and to participate in that kind of extractive, um, uh, model, I guess. Uh, and, and so on that note, I would mention two other related articles. Uh, one of these is a little bit older, but it's from uh, Dana Boyd, Dr. Dana Boyd, who is a scholar that I deeply respect. And this is from uh, her blog. It's called The Messy Fourth Estate. And she published it on June 20th, 2018, both on her blog and then out on Medium. And, you know, she is talking about journalism and how journalism is broken. Uh, but this whole foundation of, of being an extractive model, right? Like where we're going to extract value from our users in order to monetize and provide profitability. And so I think, uh, and, and, you know, full disclosure, you know, heads up, uh, Dana is, uh, is very left of center in terms of her political persuasion. Uh, I think it's an outstanding article and it's very thought provoking because she's really, She's calling on people to, 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 you know, question her thinking and to provide feedback, but saying we're going to have to rethink some models here, including, you know, the one that is basically keeping keeping journalism afloat. And on the Facebook to Google comparison, the other article that I'll highlight um, has to do with uh, this platform that Facebook has put out. Uh, this is from The Washington Post. I put this near the bottom of our show notes. Washington Post on November 17th, 2018, students protest Zuckerberg-backed digital learning program and ask him, what gives you this right? And I remember hearing about this a couple years ago. Uh, this is a platform that is called, I think it's called Summit. It's Summit Learning, yeah. Yeah, and so, and I know that we've got a number of Oklahoma City uh, public schools, you know, utilizing it. It's a learning management system. Uh, very, I mean, it's uh, you. You're probably going to be able to fill in more blanks about it and kind of where it fits into the ecosystem. My understanding is, you know, like Google Classroom or Canvas or some other uh, learning management systems. It's, but I think it has content too that goes with it. Uh, right. And so, anyway, just really, really interesting to have. You know, we we need to be you know asking questions and 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 being critical and not just blindly 
you know, grabbing on to anything that's free, because as we've said multiple times on the show, and it's a key lesson of digital citizenship, we want our students to understand that, you know, if it's for free, you very well may be the product. And so our data is often the product. So do you have any experience with that Summit Learning platform or insights into that? I do know quite a bit about Summit Learning, and now that I think about this out loud, I have no idea why we haven't talked about this this yet because it's it's kind of a big deal. So Summit Learning is, I think, either primarily or absolutely supported by the uh, Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, which is the philanthropy arm of um, the Zuckerberg family, and uh, it, it's a very interesting platform. It's built on top of Google Docs, and it essentially is it's advertised as a as a digitally enhanced um, uh, digital platform for uh, personalizing learning. Um, and I've been an observation. I've observed two schools engaged in this. I am uh, colleagues with two teachers that work in this platform, and I also have had conversations with at least another dozen or so. Um, constituents, whether it's a teacher, an administrator, a parent, or in, in a couple of cases, kids that are through this process. And we evaluated pretty early on in this game. There are digital schools that use the uh, Summit Learning platform, but we were pretty aggressively scared off by the extraordinary data sharing requirements that um, are required by this. And in fact, if you go into Summit Learning, um, there, there's been a lot of interesting pushbacks on Summit. I had not read this this uh, particular um, article from the Washington Post, and, and thanks for putting that in, Wes, because that that's very interesting. I'm going to share that with some folks after we're done here tonight. But um, so, a couple observations about it. The first one is that um, in the era of Facebook, it's it, Facebook scandals, right? Like it feels like that this, even if it's providing good, and I, I have no I have no knowledge to know whether or not that there's real efficacy to this this model or not, it's clearly going to end up uh, not existing at some point, right? Like I, I think this either gets broken apart into pieces and, and doesn't exist in the future or um, it, it has to radically change because the, the, the initial model was based on, I think, kind of a big data notion that by having access to all the student data, you could make maybe instructional decisions based off of this. But that, I mean, the, the value that, the value proposition in that, I think, is called into question. Um, I have a couple of observations from parents and teachers in the model. Um, Positively, um, it does seem to provide an opportunity for kids that traditionally go a little slower than the, the curriculum pace uh, to be able to master items before they move on. Um, although any good mastery learning format that that that, uh, that mastery learning has been something that's existed theoretically in education for nearly four decades now. So mastery learning on its own is not a new phenomenon. But I have heard from uh, a couple of educators very positively that they felt like it gave them more tools to deal with students to go slower than the traditional process. Um, I've also heard some feedback from, from educators using the product that they felt like that they were giving more direct feedback to students um, and that they felt as if that, that the platform enabled them to make good decisions there. Um, on the flip side of the coin, um, I have a colleague, a professor that uh, has a student that was in a middle school uh, that, that had been utilizing the Summit Learning Platform and they felt as, as if the teacher had, had uh, kind of checked out of the class completely. Uh, this is a math class. Uh, his son was struggling in math. And um, when he kept asking questions, the teacher kept referring the kid 
back to the computer tutorials as opposed to trying to diagnose the problem and do something. I think it's every, uh, you know, a kind of stereotypical nightmare we have about computers that that uh, teachers are relegated to being, um, at best, geotechnical support, right? At worst, hiding behind their own computer, um, uh, not engaging with students. And it goes back to, in my mind, that, you know, if, if you're treating technology like it's a replacement for you, um, it probably is replacing you and not in, in, a, in a good way or in a positive way, but rather in a very negative and I think kind of almost dystopian way. And then I've also received from feedback from, uh, this was a teacher that's teaching the program that she felt completely and utterly overwhelmed by the amount of grading because, um, there was a high expectation of feedback for students. And, you know, I want to be clear. I think feedback is a critical part of the, the, the student teacher component, but she felt like she was grading almost constantly and wasn't able to really give students the, what they needed to move on, that despite the fact that papers were stacking up. And, and to be honest, I, I have a lot of English teacher friends that feel the same way about you know, many, many different ways of teaching. If you're doing the feedback and grading that you should be doing, it's, it's quite overwhelming. Um, I, I think that the, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a weird time for, for Facebook-connected money to be pushing into politics, right? And this summit learning, I think, is three years old now. So this takes us back to just before the 2016 election. Um, you know, it, it, I think any massive data grab is, 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 is pretty suspect. But the other piece, too, that I think is also critical is that, um, you know, we, like, if, if teaching is done right, it can't be replaced by technology and a computer. And if we're relegating um, you know, like the teacher student interaction to mostly to, you know, computer based tutorials as opposed to direct interaction, what's required. I also think you're doing technology wrong. And so, um, I know it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting piece. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to see. And I, I, I just read that letter as, as you were talking about it. And it's a pretty eloquent criticism, I think, of, you know, of the, the platform and of the, the situation with Summit Learning. Couple of segues there. Um, had a great opportunity to, uh, do a, go up to Kansas last weekend with, uh, with our daughter and, and one of my son's actual, you know, best friends from high school that's a good friend of ours. And anyway, just had a wide ranging conversation. He's a, a junior also, but he's at, at the University of Oklahoma. We were talking about technology and, and classes and teachers. And he was asking me, well, what is your best, your, your favorite pedagogy? So Jason, that would be a great <laughs> blogging challenge. Actually, we could yeah. throw that out. I mean, that, you know, given blended learning, given platforms of, uh, you know, learning management systems and all these tools, you know, what what is the ideal uh, pedagogy? I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I'm going to have a chance to teach a, I think it's an eight-week course for the University of Northern Iowa in May and June. It's a producing educational media course with oh, nice. uh, Dr. Z, Dr. Lee Zeitz has recruited me to to come on as an adjunct, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that opportunity to you know, consider their, they have a model of uh, Tuesday night, um, hour and a half Zoom video conferencing, you know, paired with uh, offline learning and projects that students make. But anyway, I think that that's a, a relevant question. And it's one that all of us as educators, you know, need to be grappling with, right? Because to varying degrees, we have access to these kinds of tools. Uh, if you're certainly in, in your case, Jason, working with instructors that are teaching in a fully online environment and that that is your world but even you know in my case where we've got a very limited number of students actually just a few 
uh, but seniors really that are that are taking part in this Malone network. It's called MSON, but it's a partnership with Stanford. Um, actually, Peggy got to get in on a neat little free webinar or I guess uh, online conference that they did a couple weeks ago. But anyway, short of that, which I don't know if that, that touches maybe 20 students, you know, the, the vast bulk of our students are, are face to face, but teachers have the opportunity to utilize, you know, we have this Blackboard on campus LMS or Google Classroom and all these other tools. So how do you how do you weave those and what do you define as the best type of, you know, pedagogy and, and interactive experience for students, you know, given a particular domain of curriculum? The other thought that I had to this in terms of the broad discussion of Facebook and kind of how much their tentacles have gone out in different directions and then talking about the summit learning, you know, into learning management. It makes me think about, you know, antitrust actually in the United States and the, the decisions that allowed Facebook to purchase uh, Instagram, right? right? One of the biggest competitors, uh, then WhatsApp. I mean, I really hope that the tech correction means a pendulum shift back instead of allowing, you know, these these vast companies to just continue to gobble up and get bigger and bigger. I think we would be better off today, frankly, if Facebook did not own Instagram and that was an independent company competing with Facebook. Uh, similarly with WhatsApp, um, I guess I do. I mean, I know you have, a, I think, a geek of the week tonight that touches on T-Mobile. I'm a big T-Mobile fan. I want to see T-Mobile succeed. You know, I personally think that the merger with Sprint, it's being couched as, you know, got to compete with Verizon AT&T. If we don't work, we're not going to be competitive. But anyway, that that is actually a, a pretty strong discussion topic, whether you are teaching economics or not. If you're talking about current events, if you're talking about governance, right, the role that the, the, uh, the government has in choosing how to regulate, and the degree to which we're going to allow, you know, big companies to get bigger and, and buy out their, their competitors. So anyway, that's another segue to the classroom that I think would be a very relevant and potentially lively, you know, conversation as, as we talk about Facebook specifically and also other companies in our country. And, you know, what, what does antitrust mean today? Um, and, and where do you draw that line? Well, and, and, you know, another twist on the antitrust piece is that if, you know, Facebook is collecting your data at night and a Facebook associated educational nonprofits collecting your data during the day, right? And that's extremely oversimplification, right? Like I get that that's not exactly what's happening here, but, you know, I think that, that, that at some point, uh, the other article I shared that, that kind of touches on the complexity of some of this, um, and speaking of great things you can discuss with your students, um, the, uh, the notion that you can't, uh, or that why you can't regulate, um, Facebook. And one of the reasons why is because it's, it's, it's extremely messy, right? Like it, it's not, it's, it's not a, a, a first amendment thing. It's a, it's, it's way more complicated than that. And I remember getting a discussion, um, about a year ago, my wife and I started doing a, a this was a very small Facebook based campaign where we wanted to, you to get friends that lived in our town to commit to subscribing to the local newspaper if they would turn off offline commenting um, on their website uh, because the online comments, as it turns out, is a toxic mix, mix of doom, in my humble opinion, in most uh, major newspapers. And 
as it turns out, we, uh, my wife called the publisher of the newspaper and they were already planning on going that direction anyways. And so we subscribed like good citizens and gave them our support as did many of our friends. And what the pushback I received and, and, and interestingly enough, um, uh, it was a mix between conservatives and liberals I was friends with on Facebook was that a lot of them were concerned about the first amendment. But, you know, keep in mind, you do not have a right to express stuff on Facebook. You just don't. You have a right to express. Right. But in 2018, it is effortless. It would take literally less than a minute to create a worldwide access blog where you can type almost anything you want without repercussion or, or, or recourse, because the First Amendment, it, it by the way we've interpreted the First Amendment in the United States for for over 200 years is alive and well. But, you know, that's where Facebook challenges things, right? Like, it, you know, do you have a right to speak out on Facebook? Can Facebook take away your right? Well, the answer is maybe, and then it's complicated. And so you know, that's why these things are, are so sticky. So very much, yeah, I, it, it's, it's one of the reasons why I miss being in a classroom right now, because if I were still teaching government, which is one of my favorite subjects to teach, um, there's a little bit to talk about in 2018, as it turns out. Absolutely. Well, shout out. We've got another guest that, that's uh, here with us live. And if you uh, can want to join in our chat, um, shout out to Peggy George. Peggy, uh, I hadn't read this article, but she was saying that speaking of Facebook and WhatsApp, uh, that I guess DHS is utilizing uh, WhatsApp tracking to find out what participants are planning in the caravan and paying informants within the caravan. Good grief. It is just uh, kind of incredible today how challenging it is to sort fact from fiction and whether it's, you know, shootings in Florida and charges of crisis actors or uh, just the, the deep fakes now that are happening with video and, and how we're going to need to start questioning video every bit as much as we question a photograph that could be doctored with Photoshop. Uh, what a day for media literacy. What a day for critical thinking, right? Uh, Got to have that everywhere. Um, also, we are going uh, beyond the top of the hour because we started about 20 minutes late. So we will probably go, I would predict, 20 to 25 minutes or so past the top of the hour. Jason, where would you like to go? You are definitely the uh, the quantif- the you contributed qu- more more quantity today to to our links and all. So where else do you want to take us sure. tonight? Let's do some some kind of harder tech news. Uh, interesting stuff going on in Chrome World in, in the last couple of weeks. And, and I have to say that, as a reminder, I am a primary Chromebook user now. Um, and uh, one of the signs of that being true is that in, in the last uh, uh, nine months, um, I only travel with a Chromebook now. I used to be, uh, you know, I used to travel with a Chromebook and then have a MacBook or a, a backup uh, PC laptop sitting in a bag somewhere in case, you know, the going got rough and I needed to, to go to a quote-unquote real computer. But I am a full-time Chromebook user now and a very, very happy one at that. Um, but some interesting things going on. First, um, the Chrome Unbox reports today that, uh, the Samsung, Samsung Chromebook Plus version 2, which is one of the best form factors that has existed over the last year, and I believe that's the, the, the 4x3 factor, so the more squarish looking, uh, 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 Chromebook, and they've had a couple of different versions. It's, it's been considered to be one of the best Chromebooks in the last um, 12 months. They're now starting to release a version with an M3 chip, which is the mobile Intel chip that's, that's close to the so-called i3 chip. And the reason why that's important is because Chromebooks have relied for a long time on very low-end chips, and that's one of the reasons why they're such inexpensive devices. 
But based on the desires of power users like me, most uh, folks that are in the Chrome business are starting to put out very advanced Chromebooks that have speedier chips in them, which makes them not just uh, uh, an efficient battery-wise and a nice simple platform to use, it also makes them great for power users. And so I just want to mention that because now mainstream Chromebooks, not just the super high-end ones available from folks like Google, but mainstream Chromebook manufacturers starting to add additional chips to that. But in light of that, um, I want to remind everyone that's Black Friday this, this Friday, uh, which is a, a big tech day every year. I've never participated in, in Black Friday in, in all my many years of being a nerd, which, um, I, as I think I've also mentioned on this podcast, uh, that, that it doesn't hurt my nerd credibility. And also, uh, the fact that I've never seen a Star Wars movie, uh, doesn't help my nerd credibility either. So. Hey, we gotta do something about that. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> You're not the first person telling me that even this month. But, um, you know, the, the, the fact that, uh, you know, Black Friday is here. If you are interested in buying a Chromebook, the, the Pixel Book, which is the 2017 model that Google released, uh, is still a wonderful buy. I bought one earlier this summer on mega discount for just 650 bucks. It was worth every dollar I spent on it. But there are a number of great Black Friday deals taking that Chromebook down to under $700. And I put a link to a wonderful article from Chrome Unbox, which is uh, by far my, my favorite uh, kind of Chrome OS-based blog, um, talking about how it's still a premier laptop even a year after its release. And so if you are looking for a bargain or if you've always been on kind of a slow, older Chromebook or you really want to give a good alternative to the great hardware from, from Apple or Microsoft to try at $700, the, the Pixel Book, the original Pixel Book from 2017 is an excellent bargain. So when I put a little link there if you want the, uh, uh, um, the version from Amazon, which is available right now, um, the low end one is, is $699. So, uh, an excellent, super excellent buy, um, if you're interested in a higher end Chromebook. Very good. Um, I'll pick up a quick surveillance article. This is from Quartz on November the 9th. I think I'm actually uh, bringing this forward from a uh, past week. Uh, but the title of the article is the DEA and ICE are hiding surveillance cameras in streetlights. And, um, According to government procured data, the DEA has paid a Houston, Texas company called Cowboy Streetlight Concealments LLC roughly 22000 since June 2018 for video recording and reproducing equipment. ICE paid out about 28000 uh, over the same period of time. And uh, they include a um, an advertisement uh, for the covert traffic barrel shell. It requires Boundless's 5-megapixel embedded smart UPTZ camera. And so basically this thing looks like a regular orange and white traffic barrel, but it has an embedded camera inside. And so I guess this, you know, makes me think about the kind of inevitability of the surveillance state and, you know, areas like China and, and even London. But, you know, the different parts of, of the world are, are more advanced with this than than others. But I think there is an inevitability to some of this. We're going to see some backlash and some pushback. Uh, of course, it's always a little disconcerting when you've got a, you know, a public service group like a police department or, you know, a city government that might, you know, be concealing some of the things that they're doing here. You would think that, you know, this would just be some open, overt kind of stuff. It's not like we're hiding <clears throat> hiding surveillance equip equipment in a Turkish embassy, you know, that might, you know, have international repercussions if, if what they record, um, 
comes out. Of course, I'm referencing what happened with Jamal Khashoggi uh, about a month ago. But anyway, um, the surveillance state here it is. And um, actually, I should I should put a, I should put in here another geek of the week that um, the Richard Byrne just tweeted, which is a pretty great website. Uh, about identifying fake news, because we all need to be thinking about this whenever we see something that, you know, you know I don't know, just kind of pushes our buttons a little bit. Like, wait a minute, is this real? Is this is this legit? Um, so, yeah, I think we are not going to be sharing articles here on the EdTech Situation Room, which do not, um, you know, which which are which we, we think obviously are fake news or are yeah. not credible here. But uh, anyway, I, I, this is this is. Uh, Something that I would, I guess I just, I see this on as an ongoing example of, of where we're moving with surveillance. And from an education standpoint, you know, it's a, these things are being normalized, right? We're all just kind of getting used to it. Um, but I think it's, it's important for us. And I'm thinking about kind of a, a 1984 uh, Orwellian, you know, perspective, like, you know, what, what is too much? What does too much surveillance look like? And, you know, is that is that a, a, a place for student advocacy and for student voice in thinking about even, you know, surveillance within the, the school environment? Um, yeah, there's not really some clear lines that are being drawn there. And I think schools, like many other organizations, are continuing to look at how <clears throat> these tools of surveillance are going to be able to help, you know, schools stay more secure and and be safer. But at what cost? Yep, absolutely. And on the security lines, I dropped a couple articles in about uh, uh, kind of the run-of-the-mill hacking news of the week. Um, another Amazon, uh, this time it's a username and address leak, which is a relatively uh, relatively low-end offense. But the point of the article was that it's, it's happening pretty, pretty regularly that Amazon uh, issues are being uncovered. Um, you know, I, it's compared to, you know, some of the data leaks with usernames and passwords that's happened in, in many other sites. That's a relatively low end one. And then there's another fascinating article uh, from CNET. This was from yesterday that basically there's a Russian hacking tool available that, uh, I, I don't, I, I read the article twice and I didn't really understand how, how the tool worked, but basically it can, an email can be sent to you that you don't even need to click on before, uh, it, it, it somehow enables a hacking. I don't really understand how that works, but they did mention that uh, some of the social engineering tools are becoming more clever. Um, uh, the social engineering, for those that, that aren't up on your hacking parlance, social engineering is the notion of encouraging people to kind of do your bidding for you by tricking them in some way. The classic one is putting uh, thumb drives uh, in like a bank parking lot that have malicious code on them. Someone picks up, a bank employee picks that up in the parking lot, sticks it into their computer, and it, it unloads a payload of malware, which can steal uh, information. Uh, more recent ones are if you've ever received a uh, a fake uh, like Google Docs notification that someone's trying to share a doc with you and you click on the username and password and it takes you uh, to a fake login site that steals your login information. Um, the In fact, I, I heard a more complicated one a couple of weeks ago on the Reply All podcast on the Gimlet Network where they tried to hack their own company to see who would um, uh, who would uh, 
do that. And as it turns out, they were able to capture the CEO and the CFO of the company, the founders of the company with that. They had an enormously uh, complex uh, hacking system that I think might have actually caught me if, if, uh, I wasn't, uh, 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 if I wasn't too careful, but, but basically, um, they set up a fake domain that looked close to their domain, but was one character off. And there was someone sitting in a computer lab elsewhere that sent a fake email from the fake domain. And then you clicked on it and it was a fake login account, but they had two factor authentication turned on, but they just in real time used that username and password to get the two factor authentication that sent to the hacker so they could get into your account. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Um, or ever heard of, and, and it's brilliant and, and scary at the same time. But this new Russian hacking tool, um, and the article about it talks a little bit about that there are a lot of complex uh, social engineering tools, some of which have, you've probably seen ones that have bad Word documents that have malicious code in them. Well, there are some that you open up the document and it's just blank, and in the background it's downloading a piece of malware that, again, has a nasty payload in it. So, you know, for no other reason, you know, be careful out there, kids, because, um, you know, the hackers are out there. So We've seen a, a significant uptick in phishing attacks at our school. The last two weeks, I've had to send out messages to all of our staff, either alerting them to the fact that we've got phishing occurring. Um, most recently, this last week, and I'm able to go in to our Google Vault, which is the is an e-discovery tool. Uh, we use that occasionally when we have to, you know. Uh, respond to a subpoena or something like that for data. Uh, I had to do that this summer actually for the first time. But anyway, you can go in and query and, uh, you know, find out like, so this was a fake Gmail account that somebody had set up uh, to look like a couple different people at our school. And in one case, um, you know, that message was sent to 94 different members of our faculty and staff. Uh, thankfully, only one of them responded and replied and engaged with that person. Uh, We've got to keep talking about this. We've got to keep reminding people there are folks out there trying to trick us. You know, to your point, um, yes, it can look like a very genuine, you know, sharing a Google Doc with you. How do you need to go to that? Do you need to go to your browser window, open a new tab, and put in drive.google.com, and then go to shared with me. You know, don't be clicking on any kind of a link that then asks you for authentication. Right. Um, this is this is stuff that everybody needs to know now, right? This is not just you know things for the business office, things for you know whatever. And and I had a conversation with some of our administrators this week about how glad I am about two-step verification. We rolled that out about a year ago. We took almost a year to get everybody on board. I absolutely, as a technology director, believe that. Everyone should be on two-factor authentication for email. The degree to which you can bring your student information system and other kinds of, of uh, platforms that especially have student information, confidential information, you know, bringing those either into that same single sign-on with two-factor or having their own two-factor, you know, doing that for your banking, doing that as much as you can. It's critical um, because, you know, if there's one theme we've probably had a lot of in this show, it's about hacks and security. And, you know, like you said, be careful out there, kids. So that's going to be a continuing mantra that will not end anytime soon. 
Um, I want to add one other tool that we've used recently in the Digital Academy. This is called Know Before, which is a, uh, a testing tool where you can put in email addresses of your faculty and or, or staff, faculty and or staff, and it will send out for up to 100 users a test email to see that looks like a phishing email. And I'm proud to report that one out of 100 of our users that we tested uh, clicked on it. Uh, another 18 of them forwarded them on to uh, our support desk asking if it was legitimate. Um, I will tell you it's a pay for product. You get a hundred for free and then they will do a, uh, a hard sell. Um, but still it's a good, it seems like a good legitimate product. We're evaluating internally to find out if we want to use it, uh, in a more long-term way. But a no before is a great way to do a phishing test of, of your staff. And you know what? I've talked to other tech directors who've done that and kind of weighed, hey, is it worth it to pay? Basically everybody who pays for that finds out that some people get tricked. Yeah. Uh, and so we're having live cyber attacks happening on a weekly basis now, which like I right. said, the e-discovery tool, um, I'm actually able to gather data about how many folks are responding. Um, I was very, very proud and pleased with the response this, this, uh, you know, past week, but Hey, it's also something that is going to be affecting BYOD devices and even home computers. I mean, when somebody uh, has been vulnerable, uh, something else, um, I think I'm going to sneeze. So hang on just a second. Pardon me. Um, you know, we, like many organizations, have have emails of our uh, faculty and staff out there on the public directory. Um, I'm going to recommend to our communications department that we change that, that we actually take all those emails down and we have a contact form where folks are able to submit, you know, messages. But basically, you have to log in to our account and, and be on our intranet, uh, our, our, you know, parent student staff portal in order to access that information. It's just too easy for folks to scrape that data. You know, in, in, at some point in the foreseeable future, this would be an extreme case. But, you know, we use, like every other organization, a common syntax for creating those email accounts. And so it's not too difficult for folks to figure out what that syntax is. I can see a time where we need to do a restart because of spam and because of, of phishing attacks and those kind of things. We may need to change everybody's email address and, you know, either not use a common syntax or, I don't know, somehow mix that up. But uh, the idea that, hey, I want people to have my email address and my cell phone number, right, it's just it's really dangerous today because of uh, how valuable and important those pieces of information are as keys that unlock you know, confidential information and access to confidential spaces that we just don't want folks to be able to have access to. Um, on Peggy's behalf, I want to do a quick little Apple article. Uh, this is one that was a couple weeks old, but it's from 9to5Mac on 9 November. It's called Writing with the iPad Pro, the first 48 hours away from Mac. <clears throat> so just as Jason has been, you know, doing some testing with Chromebook and is pretty comfortable being Chromebook only, uh, the new iPad Pro, which we actually did pick up one of these and are looking at the possibility of uh, giving our teachers an option, whether they want to stick with uh, the last generation MacBook Air that still has the USB-A, you know, drives and, you know, sticking with that uh, model with a faster processor. Or, you know, if they feel like they can software wise, going with an iPad Pro with an external USB or sorry, external Bluetooth keyboard. Uh, pretty interesting. And this, this article paints a, an optimistic picture about just how powerful that iPad is and how viable it is in many use cases 
to be iPad only. I'll say that after watching Apple's special event after the fact um, on my Apple TV at home, <clears throat> I was just blown away by the Adobe demo, right? Because they had a three gigabyte file that they were just zooming in, and zooming out and moving around and just, you know, you were talking about the processors, you know, going into to Chromebooks and these different laptops. It is just astounding the, the amount of computational power that these processors are capable of putting out. Um, and so anyway, I, I'm going to be interested. I, I, I have a, a good feeling that we'll probably have some folks experiment with that going down that road of trying to be iPad only at school. Uh, from a management standpoint, as a technology director, it is easier for us to manage an iPad, frankly. Uh, certainly, it's even easier to manage a Chromebook, but then it is a laptop. There's just so many different vulnerabilities and potential uh, issues with software. Uh, having a, an environment like the, the iPad where apps are sandboxed and they really don't affect each other, it, it's just so different than... Um, some kind of legacy operating system like Mac OS built on Linux or the Windows operating system, even with Windows 10 and the improvements that have been made to it. So, Jason, any other articles you'd like to hit quickly before we do some Geeks of the Week? Um, let me see. There's one other. Oh, we'll cover this one next time. But this is also a great discussion point for your students. Uh, it's a great article from a week or so back. I'm sorry, it's a, it's a month back from The Guardian. It's basically it, that we've stalled out on expansion of the internet to new populations. And basically the point they're making is that, you know, the internet has made 50% of the world's population, which is impressive, right? That's 3 billion people on the internet. But as it turns out, the next 3 billion are going to be extraordinarily challenging. And there's a lot of energy around this. Um, amongst uh, tech companies, but you're going to find that, it, that that rate of Internet expansion is going to slow down. So we can certainly talk about that in a future episode, but I thought, um, I know if I were teaching a social studies class, that article would have already been you know hot off the printer as soon as I ran into that. So uh, uh, Internet expansion slowing fairly dramatically. All right, very good. Well, let's do some Geeks of the Week, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, my first ones I'll, I'll share actually are a couple blog post challenges. It's, I don't know if this is a Geek of the Week or not, but uh, that first one I already mentioned, uh, hey, write a blog post. What's your ideal pedagogy? And then uh, tweet that and share that uh, back to uh, Jason at Teach and me at W. Fryer. Let us know. I'd love to hear what your favorite or ideal pedagogy would be as a teacher um, and then I think the second one that uh, occurred to me as we we're talking about laptops and Black Friday and holidays is holiday laptop shopping advice, right? I'm, I'm asked this frequently <clears throat> by parents, by other teachers, folks at our church. Um, so I think I might actually write a post about that and then I can point people to that. But I'd be interested in, in how you give advice for folks on what kind of a laptop to possibly go towards, you know, for themselves or for their, their child, you know, and what are the, kind of discriminators, uh, you know, depending on how you how you see that and making that decision. Uh, my main geek of the week is a tip, and it is using incognito mode to read articles that would exceed a website quota. So as an example, there were a couple Washington Post articles that are in our show notes, and the Washington Post, like many websites today, will give you so many free articles to read during a month, like maybe five, but after that, you have to start paying. Now, I'm not saying don't pay for good journalism, right? I think that that's fantastic. If you want to do that, that is great. Uh, as it stands today, I'm not subscribing to the Washington Post, but I want to keep sharing their articles and amplifying them. 
And so in a lot of cases, the technology that those companies are using are cookies, which is a, a digital file that's set on your computer and then it registers how many times you visit it. So when you use the incognito or privacy mode of your browser, for instance, in Chrome, you go to file and you choose new incognito window and then you go to that article. Hey, they're not, you know, cookies are not set in the incognito mode and they don't realize that you've already read five articles. So I actually used that trick today um, to pull up some of these articles again, which I had looked at before, but because I had seen some other articles anyway, my main profile account was uh, at maximum for those kinds of free articles. So maybe I am a bad person for encouraging folks to not pay for journalism. Um, it is just kind of the way the web works. There's different tools that now allow us to, you know, in this case, uh, shroud our identity and prevent web tracking. That might be helpful to some other folks. Jason, what do you have for us this week on your Geek of the Week? Uh, quick note, uh, I use that tip as well occasionally, even though I've been increasingly paying for, for more news sources. One notable site that will block you from reading their articles if you are in incognito mode is the MIT Technology Review. <laughs> I noticed that a couple months ago. They used to be on my weekly look when I was looking for articles for this show, and then then I would run into the limit almost right away, and then I'd be like, oops, it looks like you're using incognito mode. Sorry. Um, so they're on to us, Wes. And um, Peggy's also say, talking about the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, this won't get you into websites like the Wall Street Journal that are that are absolute paywall. Or right. ed, ed, uh, ed Week, Education Week can be bad about that too, right? They're going to show you the first, you know, sentence and, and whatever, and then you're just going to have to, in that case, I think you have to register. I don't know, and you have to right. pay. But the Wall Street Journal, I really, yeah, I, I don't like paywalls like that. And I think journalism, I don't know, we gotta, we gotta get that figured out. But um, yeah, we do, we do. Evidently, the MIT Journalism Review, they they figured some, or is it MIT Journalism or Technology, Technology Review? Review. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing I want to share this week is that I am traveling this week. I'm in uh, Costa Rica for a week with my wife on vacation. Um, in fact, my vacation technically starts tomorrow because I work today. But um, we are here, and um, as we've talked about a lot in the past, uh, Wes and I are both very happy T-Mobile customers. And not only do I like the unlimited data and the unlimited hotspot, the other many things that I have with them, as it turns out, if you buy T-Mobile One Plus, I think it's also T-Mobile One gets this. In general, you get uh, access to free international roaming. But I'm on One Plus. It gives me 256 uh, kilobytes, which is not super fast internet, but good enough uh, data coverage that I, you know, touched down uh, yesterday afternoon or yesterday morning in in San Jose, Costa Rica, and my turned my phone on and had all my text messages waiting for me. I've been able to text in and out. Um, uh, calls do cost 25 cents a, a minute, but that's relatively cheap compared to what it used to call to, to cost to call internationally. I mean, one call today that's probably going to cost me 75 cents, and then otherwise, uh, my time here is free. I used to actually buy SIM cards in target countries, which was actually kind of fun as a geek to you know suddenly have a French number or a British number, and then so, so much data for you know, 10 bucks or whatever the the cheap SIM card costs. But um, I like it even better that I can keep my phone number, I can get my text messages, and I've had access to all internet services in Costa Rica. And uh, T-Mobile is pretty unique amongst all the carriers. They have really great international coverage. So T-Mobile, good. I'll do a shout out to that as well. A year ago, I was in Egypt in Cairo for the Eduforum conference and 
<clears throat> use my T-Mobile SIM card in my Android phone that I had picked up for, what, about 160 bucks or something, and uh, video chatted free from the pyramids back to my wife and daughter over the WhatsApp, you know, app, because, hey, LTE data was there at the pyramids, and WhatsApp is free. There's no, no uh, minute-per-minute minute charges at all. It's just Internet data, and I had data there, so it was pretty phenomenal. Yep. Awesome. All right. Where can folks find you online? Well, <laughs> I was say the same thing. I am at Tech Savvy Teach on Google. Um, I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education. I'm their Tech Savvy Administrator, blog.ncc.org. And as we mentioned in the past weeks, uh, conference information, registration's open, uh, ncc.org slash conference19 for more information. What about you, Wes? Uh, one quick answer to Peggy in the chat room. She asked if there's an incognito mode on an iPhone or iPad. Uh, yes, there is. There's there's a privacy mode in Safari. There is in the Chrome browser. Um, when I'm wanting to be stealth like that, I actually use a, a nice app uh, by Mozilla called Firefox Focus, which is a you know entirely privacy enabled browser. Which you know you can't do everything on that, but you can do a whole lot. So I am on Twitter at W Fryer. My blog is speedofcreativity.org. Been posting a little bit more. Uh, on there, and I'll do a shout-out also for my weekly newsletter, generally on Sunday nights, sometimes other nights. I've been <clears throat> writing up a, a tip, a tool, a text, and a tutorial, which is a short little video. So I've been doing that on a weekly basis, and you can find that at my blog, speedofcreativity.org. But this situation here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are thrilled that you have tuned in. We encourage you to share us with others. You should be able to find us wherever you find finer podcasts. My favorite way now to listen to podcasts is to tell my Google smart assistant, hey, G, play the latest episode of the EdTech Situation Room or whatever it is, and it, and it plays magically. Uh, I also love being able to fast forward with my voice. So I'm about to write a post about Harry, becoming Harry Potter with my wand, which is my Apple Pencil, and my, I don't know if Spellbook is the right analogy for the smart assistant, but, you know, that allows me to use my voice to do powerful things. So we are on EdTechSR.com. Follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. Generally, you will find us here on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, unless, you know, the uh, an unfortunate host gets caught up in, uh, you know, sidetracked movies or something like that, and then is 20 minutes late. So thank you, Peggy, so much for joining us, and we wish everybody in the United States a very happy Thanksgiving. Stay safe and stay savvy, and let us know if you've got any input on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Good night.